Well, would you please get a Bible this morning and open up to the book of John, the Gospel of John, and we're going to be continuing in chapter 10. And as you're turning there, if you would bring up that first picture. Oh, it was there. There we go. Everybody know what this is? What? Opalo 11. There we go. <laughs> really, really close, bud. Yeah, this is the Apollo 11 mission from 19, I believe, 69. So, here's a question, and you probably know this. Did you know that approximately 6% of the American public right now believes that this lunar landing was faked? And that an additional 5% are not sure whether to believe it or not. One, one article I read on this said, well, if that, if that statistic is correct, that means out of 10 people that you would meet on the street, one of them is a lunar landing skeptic at least. Even with all of the evidence available to them. They chalk it up to conspiracy. They disbelieve when all the evidence is pointing the other way. <laughs> and we might shake our heads at this like, oh, come on. But every single one of us, 100% of the human race, maybe now, thanks to Christ, 99.99999, percent of the human race. Maybe still today or some time ago, when you were told that Jesus is God become man and that he has saved people from their sins by his dying on a cross and rising from the dead to further prove that it worked, we said in our hearts or with our mouths, nope, conspiracy, nope, that's not real. In fact, some have gone to great lengths to say that the greatest true story ever told is the greatest conspiracy ever sold. But is that the case? Is that the case when all the ev evidence is pointing the other direction? Is that the case when Jesus himself is standing in front of you saying, Believe! Would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? As Jesus stands in front of a group of people and says, Believe. We'll be in chapter 10, starting in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you, did not, you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. You can have a seat. Jesus' Jewish opponents here are like moon conspiracy theorists. No way that this man is the Christ. Christ meaning the Savior, the promised one who would rescue his people fully from their bondage to sin and death and have life in his name. But this text charges us as, it char- as Jesus charged them that we must believe that Jesus is the Christ. I know, it sounds like we've said that before. That's what John is about. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ. That raises a question, doesn't it? We must believe that Jesus is the Christ, but what does this text tell us why we must? This text tells us we must believe that Jesus is the Christ because, first, Jesus keeps his people. So a little bit of background information At that time, at the Feast of Dedication, that's Hanukkah, by the way. The Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him, surrounded him, and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you are kept by Jesus, you will believe. Because what they ask here is not really sincere. How long will you keep us in suspense? It's like how the more literal rendering is, is, how long will you suck the life out of us by making all these claims? If you are the Christ, just say it straight up. But Jesus responds, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. How did he tell them? In his teaching, and then he says continues verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. And he may not have literally said, I am the Christ, but everything he does, everything that he teaches in his Father's name testifies he is the Christ. See, the trouble is not him telling. The trouble is them not believing. Now here's the question, why don't they believe? Jesus says in verse 26, you do not believe 
because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you are kept by Jesus, you will believe. They don't believe because they aren't his. Now, what does that mean? It means that it's not simply a matter of our willpower to believe Jesus. Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. He said, Both Jews and Greeks, so that covers everybody, are under sin. As it is written, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have been, become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. What does that mean? That means of ourselves. We don't have what we need to save ourselves from sin and from the wrath of God because of sin. And it's worse, as that passage says, no one seeks seeks for God. That means no one wants to of themselves. We We not only can't, we won't. What does that mean? That means salvation and the ability to believe has to come from somewhere, from someone outside of us. Because that's the case, how can anyone believe then? How can anyone be kept? How can anyone be saved? You can't provide any, I can't provide anything to my salvation. But if you are kept by Jesus, he will give life to you. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and he will give and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. See, we couldn't initiate rescue on our own. But what does the scripture say? John 3.16, but God so loved the world. He initiated the love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is a both and. God initiates salvation in Jesus Christ and we who are his sheep respond in belief. So that's the question. Do you believe him today? If you do not believe, pray that he would rescue you. If you do, you're part of his sheep. But Aaron, I'm not sure that I always believe that. I'm not sure that I'm just rock solid on that, Aaron. Welcome to everybody. Welcome to the club with everybody, everybody else who calls himself a Christian. There are times in our lives where the world out there, the whispering voice of the evil one, or the failures of our own flesh try to do what Christ has rescued us from, try to condemn us again by whispering, you're not really his. He might have saved you, but it's your turn to keep the salvation going. And you're failing. What does the scripture say? Jesus said, I 
give them eternal life. His initiative. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Do you know what that means? That means if you are kept by Jesus, He is committed to keeping you. Verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. Do you know what that means? That means Jesus and God the Father are one in purpose, one in mission. That also extends to they are also of the Holy Trinity, same essence. They might be different persons, but they are equally God. And what that means for us, that means that they, as God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and by implication, God the Holy Spirit, they are all committed to your spiritual preservation as a child of God. You cannot get a greater security than God. If God says he's going to keep you, what in the world could keep you from him? Paul says in Romans 8, shall tribulation, nakedness, sword, persecution, famine, distress, nakedness, what? We are secure in the Lord because Jesus keeps his people. (laughs) Well, that raises a question, doesn't it? Does that mean then that if we spit in God's face, and trample all over his word, and dismiss his commands while saying we believe him that we are secure. We've got to be careful here. Nothing keeps us away from the Father, not even sin, because he sent his son to die, to take away our sins. But if spitting in God's face, and trampling on his name, and dismissing his commands are our modus operandi? If we've been rescued from sin and secured by the greatest protector of all, if we've been set free in such a great salvation, my question is, is if you really are a Christian, how could we do those things? We've been given a new heart a new heart that is disposed toward God, not away from him, that wants to honor God, not hate him like our flesh once did. How could we neglect such a great salvation, as the writer of Hebrews says, by a continual pattern of unrepentance and mockery of the living God? And if Jesus keeps you, why would you want to? God gives abundant grace, but he never ever gives it and says, oh, go ahead and smear my name in the transformation of my salvation. Never. As Paul said in Romans, God forbid such a thing. New hearts that God gives don't do this. Jesus keeps his people. And this is not the kind of keeping and security of a caged animal. This is the protective hand of our loving Heavenly Father, the good son whom he has sent, our God, who in keeping us know, as Jesus said, my sheep follow me. Jesus keeps his people. So yeah, you may have sinned, 
within the last 15 minutes. You may have sinned this morning. You may have sinned last week. And if you didn't, you should already be in heaven. But Jesus still keeps his people. My sheep know me, and I know them, and they follow me. But why else must we believe that Jesus really is the Christ? Why must we believe that Jesus is the Christ? He not only keeps his people. Secondly, Jesus defends the truth. Because as soon as Jesus says, I and the Father are one, verse 31 says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Do you remember the last time this happened? The last time they picked up stones, Jesus got out of there. But but here, this time, he defends the truth. There are many things that people plant their flag on today claiming that it's truth. Well, what does God in the flesh defend? What truth does God defend? First, he defends that the good works are truly from the Father. Because he stops him, he says, I have shown you, verse 32, many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Did you hear how he qualified the works that he's doing? First, he's done many, a lot of them. Second, they are good works. And that's just not like nice things to do. That's noble, true, beautiful, right, righteous works. And who are they from? They're not from a sinful person. They're from the Father. Now this text doesn't say, but... As you think about that, what are some of the good works of, from the Father that Jesus does in his life? What's he referring to? He doesn't say here, but in the Gospel of John alone, we've covered several. John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding to help a newly married couple avoid shame and be filled with joy. John chapter 4, Jesus saves a Samaritan woman and many Samaritans believe. John chapter 4, Jesus heals an official son just by speaking. John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who's been lame for 38 years. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, let alone women and children, out in the wilderness, away from the cafe. John chapter 6, again, he walks on water and helps his disciples through a storm. John chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. And those are just the miraculous works. That says nothing about all the authoritative teaching he has been doing all the way along. This is not a list that comes from the average Joe on the street. (laughs) Okay? It's just not. This is a list that lines up with Jesus' claims about himself. The good works are truly from the Father. What other truth does God defend? Second, Jesus is greater than the gods. See here, the Jews don't really want to talk about record, but they how, but how about how they categorically reject even the possibility of Jesus being the Christ, being God. Verse thirty-three: The Jews answered him, "It's not for a good work." You'll notice how they didn't include the part about it being from the Father. 
It's not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Is this really true? I mean, there are people today in this world who believe that Jesus made himself God. Is this really true? Is there accusation of blasphemy? I mean, Leviticus 24, verse 16 says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. No, this is not true. And he goes on to explain why. He already was God. He has no need to make himself God. But he follows their line of argument. So when the Jews start citing scriptural precedent, Jesus holds them to scriptural precedent. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Okay, what does this mean? Well, first, let me just say, it doesn't mean that we're little gods running around with all sorts of cosmic authority. Okay, let's just get that clear. But there is a ton of debate about what this, this little phrase from Psalms means. But the point is that Jesus is defending the truth. And what he, how he does that is from an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's really a common way that the scriptures teach us. They point out, point something small, and they point, well, how much more then? So basically, if Psalm 82 verse 6 says that persons are called gods when the word of God was given to them, then the Jews should not be calling Jesus, who is the word of God, who is holy and sent into the world, a blasphemer for speaking the truth and defending it. This is like saying that even though an apprentice elect- this is like saying that even though an apprentice electrician is not a master electrician, that there's some that he's somehow not an electrician. They're both electricians. How much more is being an electrician true? of a master electrician when they've gotten their 4,000 hours of journeyman work and passed their license exam. Yes, they're an electrician then, but how much more are they with the kind of credentialing that they have? And Jesus, how much more when he is made holy by God himself and is sent by God, not just a recipient of God's word? We must believe Jesus is the Christ because he defends the truth. But why else must we believe him to be who he is? Thirdly, Jesus challenges our unbelief. How does he challenge our unbelief? First, he keeps working. Look at verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is a challenge to our unbelief. Jesus is really up front. If he's not doing what he says he's doing, no one should believe him. 
Our unbelief is not merely expressed in doubting thoughts. We wrestle with doubting thoughts, sure. But where this unbelief manifests itself is in our lives. And Jesus says that, hear me out, Jesus says that unbelief is actually okay if, if he has not worked and is not working. That means we should not make it a priority in our lives to gather on a Sunday. We should not put death, put to death sin in our lives. We should not seek to serve one another in love. We should not read our Bibles or pray if Jesus has lied about who he is and what he's done. If he has not worked and is not working, what's the truth? He has and he is. Jesus has done the works of his Father. Now, thanks to the crucifixion and the resurrection, our Father. So we must believe that he is the Christ. And this believing manifests in our lives into such things as gathering together as a priority, putting to death sin in our lives, seeking to serve one another sacrificially in love, as Christ did, reading our Bibles and praying. He keeps worrying. He keeps working. How else does he challenge our unbelief? Second, and this one's a doozy, he loves his enemies. Verse 37 again, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Us reading this right now, I don't know if you've gotten the impression of this, it almost seems like Jesus sets the bar really low for these guys. Like, you don't, don't have to believe me right off the bat, but believe the works. At least start there. If they would just believe the works, not him. If they would believe what they have clearly seen. Question is, would they still reject him if they believed his works? No. Believe the works, why has, does he say this? He says, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. Have you wondered why he stopped and told them this when they were going to gather stones? He loves his enemies. He really wants his enemies to believe him. I mean, put yourself in those, that place. Would you have stood there as full-grown men went to gather fist-sized rocks to take you out? Would you have stayed there and explained how your works were really from the Father, knowing that they did not believe you? <laughs> I don't think I would. But what does he do? He's right there, and he came to you and to me, who of ourselves would at least have said a polite rejection of God Most High with a no thank you. We are just as much enemies of God in our unbelief as these guys. But there is good news. Because Romans 5 verse 10 says it in this way. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, there's that lesser to greater argument, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? 
He challenges our unbelief by loving his enemies. And thirdly, he keeps his promises. Verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. There was a finally came a time where he's like, I got to go. I got to go. They're, they're escalating again. What does it say? Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Do you remember what John's role is, or was, John the Baptist? He was the one to proclaim, make straight the way of the Lord. Was that road construction? No. It was preparing people's hearts to receive the one who would keep all the promises of Scripture. And as Jesus goes back and rests where he was baptized and consecrated by the Father, dedicated kind of like the temple was at this feast, the people come to him and believe for all that the prophet John promised about this man by the word of God was true. He keeps promises. He challenges our unbelief because he still keeps his promises. You want to bring that picture up. One of you sent me this meme last week. I don't know if any of you speak meme speak. It's, it's, it's horrible English, but um, somebody sent me this, and it's mostly true, by the way. I do look a little bit uglier than I did in January. But as I saw this, I suspected that many of you might feel this way internally. We've been running on thinner wires than usual. More anxiety, more stressors, more decisions to make than we normally have had to. Not just, with, not just in our own personal lives, but in workplaces and even in the church. Making all sorts of changes and nobody really likes change. Except as one wise person told me, babies in wet diapers. How are we going to respond when all this hits us? Are we going to try to escape in our preferred sin of unbelief? And you all have one. I do too. When the chips are down, temptation becomes greater, doesn't it? To just blow God off. Are we going to bite and devour each other as the book of James warns against? Are we going to do what Israel did in the wilderness? Lord, the food was better in Egypt! Or are we going to remember and believe that the Lord has kept his promise, kept his promises? that he has worked for us greater things than the present circumstances in which we find ourselves. And even now, as the book of Hebrews says, he is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is for us. Jesus challenges our unbelief. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ. You can take that picture down now. Thanks. (laughs) So has he come to you? Has he been keeping you objectively, regardless of how you might feel in the moment? Bring your feeling to him and the truth of him keeping you to your feeling. Has he defended the truth? He is the truth. And he defended the truth even to the point of laying down his life to show that he was speaking the truth. That God really did love the world to give his own son. To be put on a cross in your place so that you would not have to bear the penalty for your sin and that you could be made righteous with God because you didn't have any to bring. He has kept his promises. Not one of the promises of God has failed. Ever. Linda was talking about how we, as fallible humans, there's sometimes we can't keep our promises. Man, if you've been in that position, that's hard. That is really hard. Do you know where that comes from? Part of it's sinful. We want to be God instead of God being God. Part of it's not, though. We were made in God's image. And we are made to be people who speak what is true. And in both of those, we must rely on the Lord who has never, ever failed to keep his promises and never, ever fails to keep you and me. Some consider Jesus being the Christ a great conspiracy and have disbelieved, despite all the evidence pointing in the other direction, like the lunar landing. You may be familiar with the name of Charles or Chuck Colson, who was arrested... (laughs) for his participation in the Watergate scandal in the 1970s. If you don't know what that is, go look it up. It's crazy. But during his time in federal prison, Jesus, his good shepherd, called him by name. And later he said this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible says and these 12 and we believe it because Jesus really is the Christ he keeps his people he defends the truth and he challenges our unbelief so that we would know him as the Christ we must believe that he really is let's pray heavenly father thank you that you really have sent your son. You have consecra- you consecrated him and you sent him, the word become flesh, into the world to dwell among us. 
Lord. And as a an honest father in your scripture said, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Help us not to forget that you keep your sheep. Help us not to forget that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that you always keep your promises, Lord. And thank you that we get to depend on you, a God who has worked such a great salvation. And we get to depend on you to sustain us, to guide us, to help us, to comfort us, to lead us, and sanctify us, even in the midst of circumstances that we really don't like. Thank you, Lord, for these circumstances, therefore, because in them we get to see that you are who you say you are. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that you really are the Christ, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.